Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 23. Nolimus Leges Angliae Mutari. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we saw how the political tension between Charles I and his critics in the English Parliament escalated to the point that both began considering extreme measures. In Parliament, the Puritan Junto intended to impeach Henrietta Maria, Charles's wife and queen, due to her supposedly being part of the Popish conspiracy and for giving Charles evil Catholic advice. Or at least, that's what was being said on the streets of London. In response to this, and to the Junto's seemingly never-ending assault on his kingly prerogatives, Charles concluded that the only path forwards was a display of force. He would have the most vocal critics in the House of Commons arrested on charges of treason, and so neuter the opposition to him. The attempt to arrest the five members as they came to be collectively known didn't go well. When his quasi-legal demands that both Houses of Parliament hand over the traitors weren't heeded, Charles took matters into his own hands. It was the most disastrous attempted coup which Charles had tried so far, and that bar is so low it's a tripping hazard in hell. He marched on Parliament with a force of soldiers, and entered the Commons while it was in session. This was an enormous breach of parliamentary privilege, as well as tradition, and it was for nothing. The five members had already fled, because someone talked. Someone always talks. The reaction convinced Charles that he and his family were no longer safe in the Palace of Hampton Court. He would flee from London to Windsor, before eventually making his way north to York. We left off with both sides, King and Parliament, attempting to win support to them and deny it to their opponents. Today, we'll look in greater detail to how they went about doing this. First, the Royalists. 
Because of the way the narrative has worked, I've naturally emphasised the opposition to Charles, his ministers, and the policies of personal rule. But it's important to highlight that there was already widespread support for the king before the Long Parliament first met. While many of the court-favoured candidates were defeated in the elections, others were not. Even for those constituencies which sent critics of personal rule to London, they were rarely united. Even with the minute electorate which many of these MPs were elected by, there was still division amongst them over what they wanted their MP to do in London, and that's only considering those who met the requirements to vote. Personal rule was not universally hated, and for every Puritan who saw creeping Catholicism in the Laudian reforms, there were many who welcomed them, or at least viewed the Church of England as perfect as it was, without further reform, one way or the other. Tim Harris notes that, though the early acts of the Long Parliament showed broad support among MPs for certain reforms, such as the abolition of Star Chamber, others were achieved only after hard-fought battles in both houses. Strafford's trial and execution, for example, and especially the future of the Church, were contested and debated throughout this period of supposed political consensus. This is all to say that while an overview of the Long Parliament's successes might imply that Charles was fighting a losing battle from the start, it's too simple a conclusion. If anything, support for the King only grew as Parliament became increasingly radical. The root and branch petitions and the Grand Remonstrance being key religious and secular examples, respectively. Both of these in particular sparked waves of support for the King, and the King tapped into the widespread opposition to the Junto's reforms, both secular and religious. Speaking of the Church of England, the supporters of the status quo did not stay silent while the Long Parliament met. Even before the root and branch petitions, the famous campaigns for wide-ranging reform of the Church of England, came defences of that church. And from January 1641 and into the summer, prompted by Charles's speech in January 1641, where he declared his support for the bishops and his opposition to Puritanism, came six petitions in alliance with the king's position. Then, prompted by first the Lord's proclamation in support of the traditional church in September, and then by Charles's proclamation in support of the Lords, and then by the Commons' impeachment of the bishops in the final days of the year, came another 22 petitions, boasting tens of thousands of signatures from across the kingdom. Now, these were not full-throated defences of Laudianism, and in fact, Tim Harris notes that the majority were deliberately non-Laudian and moderate in their position. But, as he also notes, non-Laudian doesn't mean anti-Laudian. And so while some of these petitions made vague commentary on recent innovations, others were completely silent about recent religious policy, or gave any indication that there was any strife within the church at all, other than that caused by the Puritans. Their priority was the defence of the bishops as an institution, for religious, secular, and traditional reasons, and in opposition to the feared intention that the Puritans intended to replace them with presbyteries. And of course, it wouldn't be civil war without social division, 
and more than half of the counties which sent petitions in support of the Church of England also sent root and branch petitions, and this led to arguments over who really represented the counties. Harris highlights the case of Cheshire, where two competing petitions were presented by two different men. They arrived at Parliament just a week apart, and both accused the other of misleading Parliament. The supporter of further reform was accused of ignoring the voices of the gentry, while the defender of the existing church was said to have, to quote Harris, obtained signatories by misrepresenting what his petition stood for, and had even affixed the names of madmen, children, papists, people who were at sea, and the deceased, end quote. The godly faction doubled down, quite literally, when they printed their petition and stated that they'd received exactly twice as many signatures as their opponents. They hadn't, but it didn't matter. It's certainly true that petitioners on both sides of the issue engaged in unsavoury methods to gain signatures, and so we can't take these documents as straightforward measurements of public opinion. But we can't dismiss them entirely, since they have to have enough popular support in the first place. They couldn't lie to every signatory, or invent supporters out of nothing. There are cases where petitioners on one side or the other, after discovering they were firmly in the minority of their community, just gave up, and the petitions were never sent. While the looming war remained cold, the print war only escalated, building on the explosion of publications over the last few years. For as many junto-supportive pamphlets which came off of parliamentary prints, there were those condemning the radicalism of the Puritan faction. In contrast to parliamentarian tracts, which were often printed on the command of Parliament, in the opinion of Harris, there doesn't seem to have been a huge amount of top-down instruction from either the king or court. It seems, says Harris, that these authors were mostly working on their own initiative. Royal proclamations and Charles's allies in the Lords gave them an idea of which direction they should work in, but they wrote and published themselves without much oversight from authorities, and mostly at their own expense. But these anti-Puritan authors had a long heritage to draw from. We've heard before how Puritans in the reign of James VI and I were denigrated as seditionists and, most offensively to the godly, equivalent to papists. These arguments were levelled against them under Elizabeth, and in more recent times had been used in the propaganda war with the Covenanters. So there were plenty of examples, both generations old and from recent years, that these authors could draw from. Now, though, in this supercharged atmosphere, where many of Charles's subjects saw popish plots everywhere, royalist propagandists could use this argument to great effect, courtesy of the fervour which the Irish rebellion had sparked, and the junto had whipped up. Without needing to downplay the danger of popery, royalist writers and speakers could attribute the same danger to Puritans. Of course, Catholics and Puritans despised each other, but as the canon of Chester Cathedral pointed out while preaching to his congregation, quote, Herod and Pilate were utter enemies, yet agreed in the crucifying of Christ, end quote. Both the Puritans and the Catholics wanted to bring down the established order, or 
so the royalists said. Significantly, and possibly due to the relative independence of pro-royalist authors, many pamphleteers declared that they were in fact defending Parliament from its enemies. The current church, after all, had been established through the alliance between godly monarchs and their parliaments, Edward VI and Elizabeth respectively, and this organisation included and was administered by the bishops. By what right did a small faction within the commons and their lordly allies demand to change it? Many drew a distinction between the reforms already implemented by the Long Parliament, removing many of the Lordian innovations of personal rule, and the proposals now being pushed through by the Junto. After all, this makes sense. Many of those who will fight for the king in the coming wars had supported those reforms, and had disagreed with their more radical colleagues. Parliament was not the problem, they said, and was instead the solution to the crisis but only in balance with the other pillars of English government, the king, the bishops, together with the lords and commons of parliament. Other defences of parliament condemned the violent crowds of Londoners who had infringed on the rights of their fellow Englishmen by preventing the free assembly of their representatives. After all, why should an unruly London crowd deny the people of Cornwall or Yorkshire, or any other county of England the right to have their views heard in Parliament. There was a distinctly hierarchical or classist flavour to these particular complaints, especially when combined with grievances against the House of Commons. This was a deeply hierarchical society, after all, where the great chain of being was to be followed, and those who had ideas above their station were condemned. Sir Thomas Aston complained that, quote, Plebeians assume to give judgment, the Parliament must execute, the nobility and gentry suffer by it, end quote. This was not the way things were done. He also linked the Junto's rhetoric to other political crises which had threatened the status quo, not least the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. So far, one of the glaring absences in this burgeoning royalist ideology was the figure at the centre of it all, the king himself. Charles may have been late to the publication game, only publishing a few items before December 1641, but once he began to take propaganda seriously, he hit the ground running. He published two responses to the Grand Remonstrance, which, if you recall, had been published without his approval. Charles recognised that he had to meet his enemies in the arena of public opinion, and so he did. Both his formal response to the Remonstrance, which had been presented to Parliament, and a declaration authored by Edward Hyde were published, and they took two very different approaches. The formal response was conciliatory, with the King accepting that even such fundamental questions as the role of bishops in government he would leave up to Parliament. Church reforms to remove illegal innovations would be supported, and Charles promised not to protect any minister from the law if there was enough evidence for wrongdoing. But the formal response also made clear that some things were off-limits. The Church of England was, at its heart, the best and purest church in Christendom, and he would protect it from both popery and Puritans. 
the King of England had always held the right to appoint and dismiss his advisers at his pleasure, and he always would. The second publication was directed at the public. This was a wholehearted defence of the King that lay out his case. He had accepted Parliament's judgment on a range of issues, and now all of their legitimate grievances had been dealt with. Ship money had been abolished, as had the courts of Star Chamber and High Commission. The Triennial Act secured regular parliaments, and the impeachment of the champions of personal rule had gone ahead, and they were either dead, imprisoned, or in exile. These were all legitimate concerns, and they had been duly dealt with. What Parliament wanted now was nothing less than the reduction of the monarchy to a mere figurehead. Parliament, and to a greater extent the House of Commons, wanted to rule. These were just the opening salvos in Charles's print war, and it only intensified after his flight from London and his move to York. Harris identifies more than 70 publications which came from the press established at York after he moved north. Most of these were not his handiwork. Men like Edward Hyde, John Culpepper, and Viscount Falkland took on the bulk of the writing. These three men in particular had once been found on the opposition benches of the Commons, supporting the downfall of the Earl of Strafford, among other policies. Now, though, they were part of Charles's inner circle of advisers. Both Culpepper and Falkland had been appointed to the Privy Council in December 1641. Culpepper had been made Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Falkland was now Secretary of State. These were important positions. Hyde had joined the King at York in May, and would in time join the Privy Council too. With these three particular authors and others, the York print began a rebranding of their king. To quote Harris again, they sought to sell Charles as a constitutional monarch, willing to redress the grievances of his subjects through Parliament and committed to the rule of law, but who was determined to uphold the true Protestant religion and the traditional constitution in both church and state. End quote. Once Parliament passed the militia ordinance, which we discussed last week, it was Hyde who authored Charles's condemnation which insisted that no subject could be forced to follow a law which had not received his consent. Perhaps the greatest single change for Charles's prospects came in May, after the king summoned a large number of peers to attend him at York. They were to advise him on, quote, affairs much importing the peace and good of the kingdom, end quote. The result of these personal summons was nothing short of extraordinary. The word went out, and over the next month or so, 40 peers arrived at York to support their king. The York peers easily outnumbered those members of the House of Lords still in London, and indeed many of them had stopped attending Parliament over the course of the last year, put off by events. Now it isn't hugely surprising that so many peers answered the king. He was the king, after all, and as we've seen throughout this episode, Charles and his allies went out of their way to emphasise that he was the champion of the status quo. The nobility, as a rule, didn't like it when commoners tried to tell them what to do. With his discount House of Lords in place, Charles was in a much better position, militarily and politically, 
than before. Militarily, the peers brought some men and could call on vast networks of clients to muster more. They offered money to the king, some £100,000. They promised to bring him more than 2,000 cavalry, and they received their commissions of array. The king also dismissed 177 men from their positions in local government, on account of them being known sympathisers to the militia ordnance. In their place, he added 154 new names to these positions. Roughly half of the counties of England accepted the king's new commissions of array, with greater or lesser successes. Politically, the optics were now much better for Charles. He was no longer isolated in the north. By arriving in the numbers they did, the peers bolstered his position and his legitimacy. Now, Charles had created a valid political alternative to Parliament. He regularly left his new court at York to travel the surrounding counties, to win hearts and minds and prevent their drift towards Parliament. When he visited Lincoln, he was met by cheering crowds, and local notables promised upwards of 400 cavalry to help secure the county from parliamentary forces emerging from nearby Hull. This was despite the county having already accepted the militia ordinance the previous month. For many English subjects at this point, it was possible to hold loyalty to both King and Parliament. This wouldn't last forever, and counties across England would become increasingly divided as it became harder to remain loyal to both. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? 
Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. While Charles and his allies were attempting to gather support and position the king as the champion of order versus chaos, his parliamentary opponents were not sitting idle. They were trying to project an image of themselves as the defenders of English liberty against the tyrannical tendencies of the king and his advisers. Supporters of Parliament increasingly sought to define the difference between the king, in the person of Charles Stuart, and the king as the sovereign of all England. By resisting Charles Stuart's illegal acts, they were in fact defending the authority of the sovereign. It's a bit confusing, I know, but Harris once again comes to the rescue with a concise explanation, quote, In the process, they came to articulate a view of the Constitution which saw government as a trust to be exercised for the common good, where the king's authority had to be exercised through appropriate legal channels, and in which sovereignty lay ultimately vested in Parliament, end quote. They tried to articulate this constitutional view through, what else, a range of pamphlets and published parliamentary declarations. After Charles's attempt to enter Hull, and his subsequent denial by Hotham, afterwards he made hay over this seditious behaviour. Parliament, in response, published a Declaration of the Lords and Commons on the 25th of May. Charles had insisted that he had the same claim as the King of England to Hull as any Englishman had to his own house and goods. Parliament argued in the declaration that the King's view was simply incorrect. The King did not own the kingdom in the same manner that a man could own a house. And in fact, this was a very dangerous idea for the average subject. Instead, the king was entrusted with the kingdom for the greater good of that kingdom, and it should be managed through cooperation with a parliament which had, after all, been appointed by his subjects. In the case of Hotham's refusal, he had been acting under the command of both houses of parliament, and they wielded the king's authority on his behalf. That the king himself had arrived and countermanded that order didn't matter. His verbal commands had no, quote, validity, end quote, against the order of Parliament. After Charles demanded his subjects not follow the militia ordinance, Parliament issued another declaration, which insisted that because of, quote, this time of extreme and imminent danger, end quote, the courts, ministers, and institutions of royal government must do their duty, regardless of the king's position. Those institutions which answered to Parliament could declare the King's will, even if the King himself personally opposed those declarations. Again, we come back to the split between the man, Charles Stuart, and the person of the Sovereign. He had two bodies. 
Ranged against the authors of the royalist cause, Parliament had no shortage of its own wordsmiths. The lawyer, Henry Parker, was one such man, and he published a range of direct refutations of the works coming out of royalist presses. From his pen came arguments of popular sovereignty, with power inherent in the people, which had been granted to the aristocracy and the monarchy in trust, and this trust was conditional. Parker used as an example of a general turning his guns on his own troops. Self-defence in this case would be just, and any bonds of allegiance or authority would be shattered by such a betrayal. He drew on Magna Carta, and argued that treason against a prince was, quote, "...not so horrid in nature as oppression in the prince, executed violently against subjects." End quote. Parliament was allowed to act when its advice was rejected. The monarch had fallen prey to evil counsellors, and the Commonwealth was in danger. In the case of Charles, instead of understanding that he could, quote, only do that which is just, end quote, he had been told, quote, all is just that he may do. Despite drawing on the examples of good government found in the Netherlands and in Venice, two notable republics, Parker insisted that he was, quote, zealously addicted to monarchy. But he had a very specific idea of the monarchy he wanted, and it was a monarchy which Scotland had so recently achieved. A monarchy which Charles had fought as best he could to prevent coming into being, and which he was absolutely determined not to allow in England. It's important to note that while I've mentioned a lot of publications which were written as responses to the other side, there wasn't any kind of actual dialogue. They spoke past each other, both sides attempting to win over the undecideds rather than actually convince their rivals. In the storm of publications which came off the prints through the spring and summer of 1642, one in particular stands out. Now, whether it was a genuine attempt to come to a compromise, or designed to provoke the king while seeming like the reasonable ones, is debated. I'm talking about the 19 propositions. These were, shock, 19 proposals agreed by the remaining members of the Houses of Parliament, both Lords and Commons. Richard Cust attributes the origins of the proposals to the Earls of Bristol and of Northumberland. Bristol was a firm king's man, while Northumberland was a moderate parliamentarian. Together, they hoped to repair the bridge between the king and his people, to, quote, set down all the things in difference between the king and the subject, with the most probable ways of reconciling them, end quote. But, however genuine their hope that this could slow, or even stop, the drift towards war, they were only part of the drafting process. Once the Junto members in both houses got hold of the propositions, what emerged was far from a compromise. The propositions were approved on the 1st of June, sent to the King in York, and published. The 19 propositions are as follows. First, ministers on the Privy Council must be approved by Parliament. Second, 
matters of public concern must be debated in Parliament. Third, appointees to the great offices of state must be approved by Parliament. Four, Parliament would have to approve the education of the king's children. Five, the king's children could not marry without parliamentary approval. Six, recusancy laws and other anti-Catholic laws were to be strictly enforced. Seven, Catholic lords would lose their vote in Parliament, and their children would be raised Protestant. Eight, the Church would undergo further reformation. Nine, Parliament would control the militia. Ten, MPs excluded from the House would be permitted to return. Eleven, officials had to swear an oath to uphold certain acts passed by Parliament. Twelve, those officials appointed by Parliament would maintain their positions provided they were well behaved. Thirteen, Parliament's judgments, such as impeachments and charges of treason, would apply regardless of whether those targeted had fled the kingdom. Fourteen, Charles could grant his pardon, unless both Houses of Parliament objected to it. Fifteen, Parliament would approve Charles's choices for commanders of fortifications. Sixteen, Charles's guards and military forces were unnecessary and would be disbanded. In the future, he could only raise his own forces in cases of, quote, actual rebellion or invasion. 17. England would forge a formal alliance with the Protestant Dutch. 18. The five members, including Edward Montague and the Lords, would be pardoned. 19. Any new peers added to the House of Lords must be approved by both houses. So those are the 19 propositions. There are a few fig leaves in there, such as Parliament agreeing to approve garrison commanders appointed by the King. But the overall effect of the 19 propositions was to essentially demand that the King surrender on all the issues which led to the current crisis. Now, this could be seen as a negotiating tactic, and there were those among the drafters of the propositions who saw them as merely a means to begin negotiation. Start strong, and be willing to discard many or most of them as a sign of compromise and goodwill. However, others among the drafters saw many of these as unconditional, particularly the parliamentary veto over ministers and control over the militias. The king did not see this as the start of negotiation. He saw it as a demand for his surrender. His answer to the 19 propositions drafted by Culpepper and Falkland and approved by Charles, was published on the 18th of June. It is, in the view of Harris, the classic statement of constitutional royalism. The Junto were cabalists, leading the rest of Parliament astray, and had tried to turn Charles's subjects against him. The King made it clear he did not blame the entire Parliament. These cabalists wanted to, quote, remove a troublesome rub in their way the law, end quote. To this end, they presumed that he had an obligation to approve whatever laws they proposed. They had begun to entirely circumvent the established order. They were legislating without the consent of the king, or even the entirety of the Houses of Parliament. The answer presented the English monarchy as a system of free estates, perfectly balanced as all things should be. 
it would be insulting and tyrannical to demand that the third estate, the commons, had no say in government, and to bow to the wishes of the other two estates without any debate or consideration. The same was true of the propositions, which would essentially exclude the first estate, the king. There were, quote, three kinds of government among men, absolute monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy, end quote. The wisdom of Englishmen centuries past had created, quote, a mixture of these, as to give to this kingdom the conveniences of all three without the inconveniences of any one, end quote. Despite their claims to the contrary, the Junto wanted to turn him into a mere Duke of Venice and transform England into a republic in all but name. Once the king had been stripped of most of his power, they would do the same to the second estate, the nobility, abolishing them and leaving the commons in complete control. Well, isn't that an interesting prediction? Watch this space. The answer went further in its prophesizing. After the House of Commons had won, the ordinary people of the kingdom would see how they had been used and reject their authority, leading to an anarchic wasteland where hierarchy was replaced by chaos, law and order by madness and stupidity. To sum up Charles's reply to the propositions, he said, Nolimus leges Angliae mutari. We do not wish the laws of England to be changed. To sum it up even more, Charles said no. If you heard me describe the three estates then, and thought, wait, that doesn't sound right, you'd be correct in thinking so. Traditionally, the three estates comprised the Lords Spiritual, the Lords Temporal, and the Commons, the Bishops, the Nobility, and the Burghers, those who pray, those who fight, and those who work. The monarch is not traditionally included among the estates. The monarch is meant to sit above, working for the betterment of all three estates without prejudice to one or the other. In theory, at least, but let's not get into that. But what the answer was doing was recasting the king as the first estate, and so presenting him as an integral balance against the other two. This didn't sit well with everyone on the king's side, Hyde was notably opposed to this angle, thinking it diminished the monarchy. But it matched the rest of the royalist propaganda strategy. The answer to the 19 propositions staked the king's claim to the mill ground. He was not just having his kingly authority usurped by Parliament. The fundamental government of England was under threat. Next time, England will descend into civil war. Before we finish, I've included a link in the show notes to a poll. I'm deciding how to go about covering the English civil wars. I could cover the military side in the same level of detail as I plan to cover the political, social, and religious sides, but I also know that that isn't everyone's cup of tea. I also know that for others, military history is absolutely their cup of tea, and would love to hear more about it. And probably the majority of listeners don't feel strongly either way. So the poll is there to help me decide. It's three questions long, and I'll leave it open for a week or so after this episode goes live. Thank you, as always, to my House of Lords, which has gained the new members of Duke Bill, Lloyd Collins, Earl of Portland, and Matt Anderson, Earl of St Albans. 
If you'd like to join their ranks and gain an ad-free feed, go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Every patron, no matter the tier, gets that ad-free feed as well as early access to episodes and higher ranks get extra perks because, much like early modern England, the Patreon system is hierarchical. As always, please do let friends and family and acquaintances and just random people you meet on the street know about this podcast if you think they'll be interested. It's simply the best way to help a podcast grow. Speaking of growing, we're also coming up on the 100th episode of Pax Britannica. That number includes interviews and bonus episodes, but excludes the random promotional things I've occasionally put out. I'm going to do a Q&A episode for it, so if you have any questions about the podcast, about the period, about me, or about literally anything at all, get in touch on either the Facebook or Twitter pages, or email me at podbritannica at gmail.com. That's pod, not pax. You could send questions to that other address, but it won't be me you're sending them to. So that again is podbritannica at gmail.com. Thanks once again to my entire House of Lords, to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the interval music used in today's episode, and as always, to you for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.